All right, well, would you please join me in opening up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can use a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can find Galatians 5 in the passage we're going to be in on page 975. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about finishing well. Finishing well. And so just out of the gate, I want you to know that if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to know that our heart for you is that you would know him in that way. Uh, Not in the way that you know about somebody because you read about him in the news or the newspaper or know about somebody because you follow them on Instagram, but we want you to know him personally. And for those of you, by God's grace, do know him personally in that way. We want you to finish well. Uh, A little over a month ago, there was the Boston Marathon. And 33-year-old Evans Shabet of Kenya won the marathon with a time of 2 hours and 6 minutes and 51 seconds. I'll save you the math. The average mile pace of that time is 4 minutes and 48 seconds for a marathon. And if you've ever watched any kind of footage of marathons on TV or online, um, the, the footage is kind of these hordes of people that all start well. Everybody starts a marathon well, right? No one is panting. No one at the starting line is bending over at the knees or hands on top of the head, sucking wind. No, at the beginning of a marathon, everyone is strong. They're smiling. They've, they head out at the pace Once the horn goes off, or I don't even know what starts a marathon, I should probably know that, but whatever they say go, they go, and they start strong. By the end, most don't finish the way they started. And this is no judgment here. I respect all marathon runners regardless, but if you watch the video of most people, they are coming and they are sucking wind. They are literally or figuratively limping across the finish line. But if you go on to YouTube and you watch the video of Evan Shabet last half mile, his demeanor looks exactly like how he began. He is running, looking like he could just be talking to somebody as he's running. He finishes and crosses the finish line and looks like he could just keep running, but they made him stop. He's smiling. He walks right into a press area. There's a microphone in his face. Pretty soon thereafter, he begins talking to them. He hugs a family member. He's giving high fives. Evans finished as he started. Evans finished well. You know, one of the major metaphors that runs through all of the Apostle Paul's letters to various churches throughout the New Testament is the Christian life as a race. Even just me doing a quick overview, uh, there's no less than 10 passages I've found relatively quickly where Paul uses this imagery of a race. Uh, Some of you might know that the concept of the Olympic Games began in ancient Greece in 800 B.C. And then when the Romans overtook Greece, they continued to uh, celebrate this idea of Olympic Games each year, and that idea then spread throughout the Roman Empire originating where it was in Greece. And so the church in Galatia, which is part of the Roman Empire in ancient Asia Minor, is familiar with running. 
And so Paul will kind of take that imagery and he'll pull it into this point of the letter. And he'll put this in their head. The relationship between an Olympic race and the Christian life. What hope is there for those who started out the Christian faith and Christian walk and Christian race strong, but then faded out? What hope is there for those who were running well, but for whatever reason, they're not any longer? Church, how can we finish well? With those questions in mind, let us now eagerly turn to the word Again, Galatians 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 7, and this morning we're covering verses 7 through 15. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. According to Paul, the Christian life is kind of like a race. And when you start a race, the goal is to finish well. There is a starting line. There are hindrances to your pace. There is a path to take. And then there's a finish line. And that's our outline for this passage. Number one, the starting line. Number two, the hindrances. Number three, the pathway. And then finally, number four, the finish line. Starting with number one, the starting line. The starting line to the Christian life is being set free by Christ. Another word for this is conversion. Faith in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, which sets us free from the yoke of slavery and the wrath of God. This is the kind of crux of the meaning of the verses that came before verse 7 in chapter 5 that Pastor Joe preached on last week. For freedom Christ has set us free, chapter 5 begins. And if you recall or you listened to that sermon, Pastor Joe uh, shared with a nod to Martin Luther that the kind of freedom Paul is talking about is not civil freedom, where you get certain immunities and privileges that come with living in a free state. He's not talking about carnal freedom, that you can kind of do whatever you want with your desires and your bodies with no moral restrictions whatsoever. That's not the kind of freedom either. But rather, he means divine freedom. Freedom from the yoke of slavery that rightly brings about the wrath of God. It is the best kind of freedom, the eternal kind of freedom. The truth that for those in Christ Jesus, meaning those, again, who place their faith in him, there is no condemnation. The kind of freedom that says that God is forever for you. In John chapter 8, Jesus himself says, if the Son sets you free, you are free 
indeed. This is the rebirth. This is the new life that Christians enter into upon repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus, which is why I said right out of the gate that, again, if you are not a professing believer, we are glad you are here. We are glad you are watching. We believe that it is the Lord's grace upon you that you are here or are listening And we at Grace Church want to continue to reiterate that our deepest hope for you is not to start acting a certain way, uh, is not to start looking a certain way, it's not to just start talking a certain way, and, and then here's this list and start doing these things and quit doing those things. It's not our primary desire for you. Our hope for you is to be set free in Jesus by faith. We want you to know him, to believe that by his death and resurrection, he can set you free. That it's not primarily about the kind of life you live that others see, it's about the person you trust and the kind of life they'll come in time. But the starting line is about a person you trust, and his name is Jesus. And it is indeed at that moment that we arrive at the starting line. For those who believe this morning, the moment you believed, whenever that was, if that was last week, if that was last decade, if that was in the 1950s, the moment you believed, you began at the starting line of being set free in Jesus, fully loved, fully forgiven, fully saved. And now at the beginning of a new life in him, that you are now set out to run, run with a power that can only come from him the starting line. But now we move to number two. This passage really focuses on the hindrances. You'll see in a moment why I'm using that word. This is where we pick it up in verse seven, and Paul says, you were running well. Past tense. And then he asks, who hindered you? The church in Galatia began the race strong out of the gate like the masses of those starting at the marathon. uh, When the horn went off, they bolted out, and the church was running well. But then they were hindered. They faced obstacles that sought to keep them from finishing well. You know, Jesus taught something about this as well in the Gospels, uh, but instead of using the imagery of a runner, he invoked the image of a farmer. In the parable of the sower... Jesus says that when the gospel is proclaimed, it is like seeds spread out over ground. And from that, four things can happen in this parable. He says, number one, the seed could never find soil. The seed that never finds someone who responds in faith. It hits the path, it never gets to the soil. In Paul's language, this would be the runner who never even made it to the starting line. Then the last seed, number four, was the seed that finds the good soil, the one that Jesus says, hears the word, understands the word, and grows in the word to bear fruit. In Paul's language, this would be the runner who starts well and finishes well. But there are two middle seeds. Half of all the seeds thrown are the ones who start well but don't finish well. The second seed hits rocky soil. 
Jesus said this is like one who hears the word. They immediately receive it with joy, but it has no root in it. And so when trial comes, when tribulation comes, when persecution comes, they fall away. The third seed hits the soil with thorns. This is one who hears the word, receives the word initially, but then the cares of the world, and Jesus says the deceit of riches, chokes it out. It bears no fruit. These middle seeds are the ones that would be told, you were running well, but something hindered you. Church, what hinders us today? Again, for those who profess to believe, those who have been set free in Christ, what hinders us? Now, there are things such like tribulation and suffering that is out of our control, and it's not punishment. Paul even refers to that in the passage. He says, why am I being persecuted? I'm persecuted for telling the truth. That happens sometimes. And sometimes those trials and those tribulations are ordained by God. In fact, they are all ordained by God for reasons that we may not understand. And God commits to never leave us nor forsake us in those times when we are running the race and we are hindered by trials, tribulations, and persecution. But in this passage, Paul is focusing on the kind of hindrances or obstacles that he says in verse 8 are persuasions that are not from God. They're not ordained by God, and he has empowered us to overcome them. And so I want to talk about those hindrances in two categories this morning. Number one, unaddressed sin, and two, a sinful influence. Number one, a hindrance to us running the race well, a hindrance to us finishing well is unaddressed sin. I want to be careful here. I want to try to be clear here. That when we say we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying that we have objectively been freed from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But we have not yet experientially been freed from the power and presence of sin. We know, you know, every day we face temptation. Every day we battle with the flesh. And Paul will talk about this a lot through the rest of the letter that we are still tempted and we battle daily against the sin with us that remains. Which is why the word says that when we do sin, we confess that sin because we have been set free in Christ. We are free to confess. We are free to repent, as John writes in one of his letters, because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, so let's stick with this metaphor. Picture this with me. Um, picture that you're running a race. All right, put yourself in your mind's eye somewhere where you would enjoy doing a race. All right, are you by the ocean? Maybe you're in a park. Maybe you're on your Peloton in your living room watching Netflix. All right, wherever it is, like you're on a race. Sin is like during that race, someone just put a brick on your back. And when you address that sin, that brick comes off. It hindered you initially, but you confessed it, and God is faithful to forgive. And that brick is removed, and you keep running, and you keep running well. But unaddressed sin, the sin that goes unchecked, 
The sin that gets justified in our lives over time is that it's not that bad. There could be worse things. It's just a a minor thing, either that you can't shake and so you gave up long, long ago trying to shake it, or that you have so convinced yourself that, you know what, like, it's 2022, the world's changed, this is okay. The kind of sin you make a deal with, you know that sin? That would be like if the bricks just continued to pile up. And now you're in that race, you've got to put a backpack on because you've got to hold the bricks. And the bricks just gets added one at a time. And at one point you were running well. But each step now feels a little bit heavier. Each turn is a little bit harder. That run over time slows down to a jog. That jog then transitions to the fast walk. You know the walk I'm talking about? You're trying to pump your arms, but you can't run. And then to a slow walk. And the bricks keep coming, and the backpack gets filled, and then eventually you stop. Unaddressed, unconfessed sin weighs us down. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Church, some of us need to be honest about what is weighing us down right now. What is hindering you from living out the freedom you've been given in Christ? Let me ask it another way. What are the false gods that you tend to go to for comfort when the trials, the stress, the pressures of life, the disappointments of life come? Where do you go to feel better? It's not going to look the same for any of us. Perhaps it's an unhealthy relationship with food. Perhaps it's a dependence on alcohol and you've known how to manage it up to this point, you can handle it just enough for other people not to be overly concerned, but you know you depend on it. You need it. Perhaps it's pornography. It's so accessible. It's really easily hidden. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody really knows about it. It doesn't affect my relationships with anybody else. Perhaps it's something that us Christians especially tend to have an easier time justifying compared to the worldly sins, the worldly vices. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book years ago called Respectable Sins. Have you heard this book? The, The Respectable Sins. And his contention in the book is that one of the reasons why there's often this disconnect between what God has seemingly promised in our Christian lives and what we experience in our daily lives is that we give into the desires of the flesh. And many times, the hardest desires to refuse are the respectable sins, as he calls them. The sins like pride, judgmentalism, irritability, anger, discontentment, resentment. What Paul is urging the church in Galatia is that we have the power to resist that hindrance. 
Because the power of the Holy Spirit in us, in these cases, is more powerful than the power that is trying to hinder us. And the key to how to address unaddressed sin is to confess. Be honest with yourself. Free yourself from the weight of the bricks that have weighed you down. But the second one, the second hindrance that I think he especially is hitting on now in this letter is a sinful influence. This we know is at least in part the, one of the major issues in Galatia. That they are giving into and being drawn away by a sinful influence of false teachers. And in their case, it's not a worldly influence, but it's a religious influence. It's kind of tricky, right? It's the super religious people that are drawing them away from Christ. You wouldn't expect it. It's the kind of influence that says that, yeah, it's good and well, you believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus too, but you also have to conform to some religious activity that we prescribe for you to be saved. It's the idea of being justified by works, and we know, because we've been going through this letter since January, that to be justified by works, if you think you're justified even just a little bit by works, it destroys the whole gospel of grace that they have been set free by. So if unaddressed sin is like putting bricks on your back, then a sinful influence is like being led to run on a different path. You might still be going full speed, but you're going full speed in the wrong direction. And in a race, as you know, it doesn't matter how well you're running if you're running on the wrong path. So at Camp Spofford, where our family goes every summer, they do a mini triathlon each week. Swim, bike, run. If you know the big triathlon, it's called the Iron Man. All right? Spofford calls this the Tin Man. <laughs> Serious. And the bike portion of the Tin Man is you ride around Lake Spofford. It's something like six and a half miles. And there's about four to five turns you have to make to get around the lake from one street to another. And there's one turn that, for whatever reason, is really easy to miss. It, it, it's kind of right after a bend, and then there's a nondescript turn that looked like it could be a driveway, and there's trees on all sides of the street. And so it's not necessarily like hidden, but your eyes could easily miss it, especially if you picture yourself on the bike, you're booking it, your head's down, you're just trying to go as fast as you can. You can easily miss this one turn. And without fail, almost every week, at least one biker misses it. And if you miss it, you could go for a long time without realizing it, because all the streets kind of look the same. And it just kind of keeps going and going. Eventually, the wrong path starts to go uphill. And you're like, nobody told me about this hill. And you could be booking it on that path, pedaling hard, giving it all you got. But soon you'll realize that all you're doing is getting further and further from the lake. It doesn't matter how fast you're going if you're going in the wrong direction. This is what false teachers and sinful influences do to professing believers. They create distance between you and God. They create distance physically, not only keeping you from him, but probably from a fellowship of believers. It creates distance emotionally. Your affections for God, for God begin to wane over time, and your affections for other things easily surpass your affections for God. It creates distance spiritually, where a relationship with God weakens, and it weakens, and it weakens. 
And Paul says, they seek to persuade you. False teachers are very good at persuading you, convincing you, drawing you away from the God who freed you. So Paul says, watch out for the hindrances to running well. Unaddressed sin and sinful influences. Because it only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. You bread makers out there, all probably four of you, you know it takes just a little bit of yeast to impact bread dough and make it rise, just a little bit. And yeast in the New Testament is often a symbol of permeating sin and false doctrine. It just takes a little bit and let it do its work. But healthy Christians do regular checkups. Is there any unaddressed sin in my life? Am I being influenced by someone that is creating distance between me and God? Regular checkups. Get your spiritual blood work done. Otherwise, there might be a hindrance that goes unnoticed that will keep you from finishing well. Let's keep going to now number three. We've seen the starting line, the hindrances, and now the pathway. I hope at this point you're craving, okay, what is the pathway? i got to stay on the pathway. What is the path from the starting line to the finishing line for those set free by Christ? Well, the verse I read earlier from Hebrews 12, I think gives you the foundational answer to run with endurance with the race set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But then look at what Paul does in this text. He kind of takes it a little bit in an unexpected direction. Let me read again verses 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. These final verses in this passage are a kind of a hinge. They are a segue into the rest of the letter. And Paul, from this point, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's going to get very practical. He's going to give us kind of a how-to guide on how to live in freedom and run the race set before you. And this is kind of the start, the introduction. And for the Galatians, he's not warning them about what could happen in the race. He is talking to them in the midst of the mess they've already found themselves in. They're on the wrong path. And I say that to say this. I hope this actually can spark some hope in us. Hear me, especially those of us who feel like you are in a season that I just described. That that is your story right now. That there's unaddressed sin. That you've been led away by a sinful influence. For those of you who would say, I was running well, but are not any longer. These verses should first indicate to you the fact that Paul is just writing this, that all is not lost. That where sin exists, grace abounds for the people of God. And you are not hopeless because our God is faithful. And his love for you never runs out even if your backpack's full of bricks, even if you're on the wrong path, those who are not running well now 
can still finish well. But notice, he doesn't just say, try harder, get up tomorrow and do better. If you've ever been struggling and someone told you that, how helpful was that advice? If somebody around you is struggling, you're saying, you know what, how about you just try better, try harder. It doesn't work. That's not how God works. Looking to Jesus, but then what's the one point Paul makes at this, at this point in the letter, a pretty dramatic part of the letter? He says, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Use your freedom to love and serve one another. That's the path. And when you've been set free by grace, you've been set free from something in order to do something. And so when Paul writes the phrase, one another, it's all over the New Testament. When he writes the one another, remember, he's not talking to individuals. There's a church reading this letter in a corporate gathering. The primary one another's are the fellow members of the same church. So look in front of you. I know it might be awkward. Glance to the person to the right of you, all right? Don't like really let them know you're looking at them, all right? Just glance at them. Glance to your left. Glance behind you. These are the one another's that Paul is talking to. The primary one another's are those that are in the same faith community. He's talking about them. Love and serve one another. And so you put this all together, and here's what Paul is saying that started in verse 1 to now. In Christ, you've been set free from sin and God's wrath. So then, in the Spirit, you are freed to love and serve one another. Freed from sin. Freed for love. Those who run alone don't finish well. Please remember that. Those who run alone don't finish well. This was vital for the church in Galatia. I think it's even more vital to say and affirm for the church and Christians today. It is as easy today in 2022 as it, I think, has ever has been in the history of the world to isolate from other people. Technology, with all of its benefits, makes it easy to not actually be around others. And you throw a long-lasting, never-ending pandemic in the mix, and what we have now is an epidemic of lonely, isolated Christians. And lonely, isolated Christians are easy targets for the enemy. And we should be real and honest with each other. It is easier to not commit to a church community. It's kind of easier not to. It's easier to keep an arm's distance from real community. It's easier to have the cultural doctrine of, I want you to notice me, but don't know me. Notice me, but don't know me. That's easier, but it's not better. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. He was a dissenting voice against the government as a Nazi regime overtook the country between World War I and World War II. He actually would eventually have been executed in prison. But he wrote this little book called Life Together. It's like 100 pages, maybe less. A little book called Life Together in 1939. My favorite quote in that book is the, in the first chapter when he writes about the importance of encouragement in the faith community. He says, the Christ in one's own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of another Christian. But in chapter four of Life Together, 
he provides these three ways of service. Because if we're honest, saying serve one another, love one another, that kind of kind of washes over us pretty easily. We hear it all the time. It can tend to be this general vase that we don't always maybe define. And so in this little book, Life Together, he gives the church three ways to serve one another in a healthy faith community. Real quickly, number one, the service of listening. Bonhoeffer writes that if you can't listen to one another in need, how can you listen to God? A commitment to listen to one another, to resist assuming things about one another when you first meet them, to resist rushing to judgment. I got this person pegged. I know what they're about. I know what she's like. Instead of truly listening. And here's the thing in a church community, you can't program listening. We can't run a program called listening. But oh, that we would see a growing, vibrant culture of listening at Grace Church. Asking good questions. Getting into spaces where we listen. Again, social media, I'm not saying it's bad, but social media primarily says, notice me. Church community says, know me. To be noticed and not known might be comfortable, but it won't form you in Christ. To be known requires a willing vulnerability. It requires some risk. And that is what leads to flourishing. And that is the pathway to finishing well. Number two, Bonhoeffer writes about the service of helpfulness. The service of helpfulness. It's simple, but it's impactful. That small external acts of helpfulness, being on the lookout for them, prioritizing the desire to carry them out, especially within the body of Christ, but also, as Paul writes, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we think about physical need and emotional needs and spiritual needs that we have. How powerful it is when a faith community consists of people who are actively helping one another. And here there are formal lanes of helpfulness. It's helpful for your faith community when you serve on Sunday. It just is. It's helpful. It's helpful to the kingdom work of the church when you are financially generous. It is helpful when you use your gifts to not promote yourself but to build up others in the faith. And then there are informal, kind of spontaneous lanes of helpfulness. And notice there where listening and helping are connected. It's hard to help in times of need unless you listen for where there is need. And then number three, the service of forbearance. Bonhoeffer calls it. That's more of a 1939 word, but it's you don't hear it as much today, but he takes this directly from Galatians 6, which we'll see in the coming weeks when Paul says and writes to bear one another's burdens, the service of forbearance, to enter into spaces and walk alongside one another in, in special seasons where there's a burden with those in your church who are carrying a heavy load. And so let me walk this with you. Let me share that burden. No member of this church should carry a burden alone. That should be an emergency. And so there's dual responsibility there. If you have a burden, you need to be willing to share it and risk the vulnerability of sharing a burden. And then it's our job as a church to share that burden with you. Dual responsibility. 
Be in a faith community where you are not just noticed, but you are known. Be in a faith community where you don't just notice others, but you know others. Hear me, there's a few hundred of us at Grace Church. You can't know everybody at Grace, but you can know some. You can't be known by everybody at Grace, but you can be known by some. Be known. Love and serve one another. And then lastly, we arrive to the finish line. And at the finishing line, we see that it is by God's grace that you can finish well. And as you run the race, you can rest confidently in the Lord. You can't do it in your own strength, and God never called you to. But only when we operate out of the freedom that we've been given, that we have the power to keep running well. Like Evan Shabet, mile 5, mile 10, mile 15, all the way through. Finish how you start. That is possible for you. When Christ is the foundation of our strength, we are free to run. I want to conclude with a quote from a woman named Sydney McLaughlin. If you're into the Olympics, you might recognize that name. Sydney ran last summer for the United States Olympic team in Tokyo. Beforehand, in the Olympic trials, she set the world record for the 400-meter hurdles in June. After that, she's getting all this praise, as you could imagine. She writes this on Instagram. See, social media can have its benefits. She writes this. Weeks like these are some of the hardest in a track athlete's life. The mental strain of preparing for the rounds in order to solidify your spot is heavy enough. But the amount of weight the Lord took off my shoulders is the reason I could run so freely yesterday. My faith was being tested all week from bad practices to three false start delays to a neat delay. I just kept hearing God say, just focus on me. It was the best race plan I could have ever have assembled. I am no longer running for self-recognition but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Sydney, for using your platform well. And this morning, church, wherever you are in your race, whether you're right at the starting line, whether you were running well and have slowed down, or you are running well, the message for us is all the same. Hear God say, focus on me. We want you to finish well, and by God's grace, you will. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you how you never leave us to our own devices or our own wisdom to figure out this life on our own. Lord, life can be so difficult. The day-to-day -day grind we find ourselves in, the stress, the pressure, the, the struggle, the, the unknown, the fear that we face. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that illuminates your word to our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would be set free in you. And because we've been set free, from sin, 
that we would know we have been set free for love in this world. Lord, be our foundation, be our strength, be our hope in life and death, and then give us the courage to live the lives you've called us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing and prepare to conclude with the Lord's Supper?